On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Hey, this is O'Teal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of comes a time. I am Mike. I'm O'Teal. How about that last one, Mike? Well, we just had a uh, master's course in uh, history with Dennis McNally, uh, Grateful Dead historian, uh, close personal, you know, part of the Grateful Dead family. And we talked a lot about a lot of Kerouac and the beats in America. And uh, it again went where it needed to go. Right, O'Teal? <laughs> went everywhere. <laughs> I love it. You say, I always had all these questions. I wanted to ask them the about Jerry. Is the point. But you know, this is jazz, man. We just like, yeah, man. we count it off and we start swinging. That's it. And it goes where it goes. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, man. You know, it's so funny too. Cause like, meanwhile, like before this podcast was recorded, I'm listening to two hours of Victor Wooten's book. And then I go into the podcast and I'm like, of course it's not going to go where I wanted it to go. It went where it was supposed to go. You know what I mean? It's just all perfect. Dennis, <laughs> you're amazing. Uh, for you know, it's just the tie-in, man. The beats and the. I think about so much of that stuff. You know, Cassidy was it's, Cassidy mm-hmm. was, you know, Dean and on the road, and then he drove the bus, and Bobby roomed with, with Cassidy, and wrote the other one. And played it the yeah. night that, you know, Neil dies. It's just the, the the throughput of this whole thing. It's just all ties right into everything that every conversation we've had with all our guests. I remember the first time that I realized that I was like, wow, Colonel Bruce wasn't a hippie. He was a beatnik. Like that was his. Yeah. This right. He was born in the 50s, you know. Yeah. Like that's where his mindset was. And then the 60s happened, the hippie thing happened, and everybody was on acid. So he made perfect sense. But like his orientation was like pre that. Yeah. And now I'm starting to see that whole, you know, it's just like, it's great. It really is incredible. This was an incredible conversation. Yeah, it sure was. And his, uh, Dennis McNally, for those of you who know him as the Grateful Dead historian, he was a, a Kerouac historian as well. And Kerouac's my all time favorite writer. Went before I moved to Colorado. 
after my miserable weary split, which is what, you know, that's how on the road starts. I went instead, before I went West, I headed East to Lowell mass and visited Kerouac's grave and then turned and went West. So it was kind of like, yeah. a, I, I really, Kerouac is like a, a very important part of my life. So it was really an honor to talk to Dennis. Enjoy it. Everyone. Uh, we're here on Osiris, home to so many great podcasts. Check them out at OsirisPod.com. And we would love to have you come hang out on the, at the Space Station, a.k.a. Patreon. Go to Patreon.com slash ComesAtimePod and check out uh, everything that we're doing over there. Uh, enjoy, stay safe, and uh, see you next time. Peace. Which one did you have, Dennis? Moderna. Okay. Did you have a bad side effect to the second one? I, mean, I lost two days. Yeah. It, it wasn't. It wasn't awful. I had a friend who was like the chills and the this and the that. I just uh, was, uh, you know, exhausted. I mean, the first day was like I had the flu, and the second day I was just very tired. But yeah, know. I ended up with the Pfizer and. Uh, my wife's a nurse practitioner and people were just not showing up for their appointments. So they were throwing out doses. So they started calling friends and said, any family or friends that just, if they could be down here in the next 40 minutes, they can get the shot. So I went down and the first shot didn't bother me, but the second one, exactly. I had yeah, a horrible, horrible nothing. day. Yeah. Yeah. But did you, did you read about the, the people uh, uh, who got stopped by the overturned truck? This is in Oregon. Yes. And, uh, Hilarious. A gang, a ga- it was a wonderful story. The, this gang of uh, people were coming back from a big uh, you know, vaccination session, and they had six, six left, uh, six doses left. And uh, they, got, they got stopped by an overturned truck. You know, they were in a line of traffic that was stuck, uh, snow drifts and the whole thing. Um, and um, so they looked at each other and went, we got six, let's – so they get out of the car and they start knocking on cars and some people went, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't roll down the window. I mean, it was like, who are you? And what are you talking about? And then one guy leaped out, ripped off his shirt and said, you know, take me, take me. So, <laughs> and uh, you know, then they did the paperwork cause you, you got to get the second shot. And it's like traffic going into the lot. You just got doses, doses. <laughs> you, you've seen that. You've seen the, uh, the little internet meme about, uh, you know, hmm, how do we deliver millions of doses to stadiums all over the country? Where's Bear when we need him? <laughs> <laughs> Dust off the further bus. There you go. It's good to see you. Yeah, man. So we, we, we've been having this uh, uh, idea that maybe Palo Alto is actually Terrapin. <laughs> so many things <laughs> seem to lead back to there. <laughs> what 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 comes to mind when you think about Palo Alto? Um, actually, it's Palo Alto. Palo, uh, just me. just FYI. Um, uh, you know, one of the great uh, one of the greatest mistakes ever was. Um, Eric Burden's song, it's a great song actually, but um, that talks about warm San Francisco nights. <laughs> yeah, so, really. uh, for those of you who've spent any time in San Francisco, um, you know, we're on the ocean and, and it's actually, 
you know, fairly chilly a lot of the time. Right. Uh, so when Jerry Garcia got out of the army, there is a point to all this. When Jerry got out of the army, um, which alone is a you know story worth uh, you know the the least like likely uh, person to be in the army ever. Um, <laughs> uh, in uh, January of 1961, he went to Palo Alto. Uh, he had lived there as a in junior high school, but but the reason he went there is this kind of paradise um, uh, in terms of uh, you know warmth. Um, Nice female uh, undergraduate students at Stanford, many of whom no smuggled him into the uh, into the uh, stu- their uh, cafeteria. Uh, I mean, he was as he said, I was a bomb model. You know, I slept on couches and and uh, was just uh, you know floating along, a, a basic beatnik. Um, yeah. And Palo Alto, but on the other hand, it also it had a nice coffee house, a place called St. Michael's Alley, which is and a wonderful bookstore. You know, what else do you need actually? Coffee, coffee, and good books, um, and and he hung out in those two places. And especially the bookstore um, was run. Uh, it was called Kepler's. Kepler's. And Roy Kepler, who was part of the uh, Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was a pacifist um, anti-war group, um, which in 1961 was, you know. A super minority, shall we say? You know, everybody thought that everything was cool and the American <laughs> military was the best, which, which uh, certainly was the strongest. And uh, uh, I once I interviewed Kepler and, and I asked him, you know, I mean, here's this this guy uh, Garcia, and he's sitting in the corner playing a guitar and hanging around, um, but buying nothing. Um, and he said, you know, he added there there was something about the atmosphere. Um, you know, when you have live music playing in the corner, um, I felt I could protect him. Uh, and that was sort of Kepler, Kepler's, um, you know, sort of ongoing approach. And really the best part of Palo Alto, um, then that whole, um, that whole scene, um, uh, this guy named Ira Sandpearl was the clerk at Kepler's and Ira later um, coached uh, Joan Baez in nonviolent theory and practice and 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 it you know really started um uh jones now 60 year um career as an activist Mm -hmm. so you know it's it was a very cool scene and jerry jerry was you know had his his part in it we we've had talks with uh even you know all the way to ken babs just about like how you know perry lane and kesey and the there just seemed to be something all the way to O'Teal were we discussing like UFO, <laughs> a, a lot of very, I mean, every all, Palo Alto seemed to just be like a magnet for the, the, the strange, but the good strange. Well, uh, yeah. You know? all the, yeah. <laughs> the LSD and everything. Uh, yeah. Out of st- stuff happening in Stanford, the remote <laughs> viewing experiments with at Stanford, you know, Stanley Krippner, that's something I want to talk about later too, you know. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Stanley's around. Um, you have uh, Karma. Now, let's see if I'm going to get this right. Uh, Karma was uh, an institute at, um, at Stanford um, Center. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to remember, but it's, it's for electronic music. Um, and, oh, yeah. and, and uh, you know, did some you know, really important stuff. There was also this guy, and I know I'm going to blow it up. I, I'll, I'll recommend to one and all 
a wonderful book about uh, this place and time and LSD, I might add, uh, is called uh, What the Dormouse Said. I have to, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, uh, by a guy named John Markoff. Markoff um, was a New York Times reporter covering Silicon Valley for forever. Um, and then he uh, wrote this book and it's about, among other things, it's about uh, this institute, which, and when it was still legal, um, gave all these, you know, um, short white, short sleeved white, you know, all those guys, those engineer types that you saw in the early moonshots, right? Yeah. You know, with, uh, you know <laughs> stacks of them with their, with their pocket protectors and their, you know, clip on ties and the whole, the whole thing. <clears throat> he was giving them LSD and there's a, there was a level of creativity. One of the, the, the points of the book is the basic concept of the personal computer happened in the Bay Area because, to, to, to sum it up, they were doing acid. It, you know, it, the, 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 uh, what, what we call Silicon Valley could have happened on the outskirts of Boston because of MIT. Right. Uh, but it didn't because they, they, you know, they're thinking, well, well, you know, they're brilliant, but their thinking was, we're going to go work for IBM and, and you know, make mainframes. And, and you know, the, the people in, in the Bay Area went, well, no, why don't, you know, why don't we put it on our desk instead of in an entire room? And, you know, the end result was Apple, actually. But, but uh, uh, and, and that has, those guys were part of the, what well, uh, that is the Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were part of, uh, it was called the Homebrew um, Computer Club. Um, and they were like really early nerds um, that, uh, as I say, sort of, got over the mental thing of, you know, computers are only X, which is to say giant mm. and changed our world, completely changed our world. If you're thinking outside the box, because they were dosed. <laughs> because they were dosed. You know, it's so funny when I think about Garcia in the army or in like the, <laughs> you know, like I, it's that, you know, there's that, that part of on the road uh, where Kerouac kind of works a shift as like a night watchman. Uh-huh. And uh I think about how Garcia probably thought about that when he was, you know, cuz it just seems like just such an odd pairing. Do you know what I well, mean? It's a totally like, odd pairing. I mean, he faced the 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 classic um uh, option uh which was he was in trouble. I don't think it was auto. I think he went he might have gone joyriding. It might have been, yeah. But he was in trouble. Yeah. And he was a scrub. You know, he, he didn't like his his uh, his mother had moved him up to a place called Casadero. And if you if you uh, uh, look, you'll see that it's it's a long way from anywhere. Casadero. Yeah. Um, it was like an hour bus ride to Sebastopol, which is like hour and a half, at least north of San Francisco. So it's out in the country. He was a city kid. Um, and uh, so the judge said, uh, you know, and if you ever listen to Dupree's Diamond Blues, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll hear, you'll hear this dialogue. Uh, the judge said, son, this is going to cost you some time, the army or jail. And Jerry said, uh, you know, where do I sign? So he joins the army. And, and of course, you know, it's the, it's, it's the, <laughs> the, uh, the joke of, of all time is that, uh, the most, my father was the 20 year army guy. 
Um, and I, when, when Jerry told me that he had been assigned to Fort, uh, uh, to the Presidio, which is, you know, the northwest corner of San Francisco, um, I almost fell to the floor laughing because it's undoubtedly, um, you know, in the top 2% of nicest play. If you're in the army and you pick anywhere in the world, you probably pick the Presidio. I mean, the, the duty, you know, you're in America and you've got all the, the, the things of America that, that, that you don't get no matter what um, uh, elsewhere. Um, you know, it's just ideal. And that's where they assigned Jerry, assigned Jerry, you know, he was going to see the world, you know, when you join the army, well, you know, maybe I'll see the world. That'll be good. Yeah. See the world. They moved him, oh, approximately two miles from his birthplace. Um, and, uh, and he was a screw up. I mean, he was a screw up there too. Um, and what happened was that he had a buddy who was troubled uh, and he was talking about suicide, whatever, you know, but his buddy needed him more than the army did. So he was constantly late for uh, Reveille, not Reveille, but whatever they called it, uh, but reporting in. Yeah. And eventually, and here's, here's what I didn't understand what he explained to me was because it was such cushy duty, if, if you were a commander and you got a screw up, you didn't like give them a hard time. You just got rid of them because they were trouble and you didn't want trouble. Wow. You know, life is good here. Yeah, you know, we do yeah. not need screw ups. And, and so the, uh, basically the, uh, the officer said, Mr. Garcia, you don't really appear to be adjusting well to the army. Um, how'd you like to just leave? And Jerry said, I'd like that fine, sir. And then, you know, honorable discharge, you know, just not compatible with the army. Bye. Lucky dog. I know. Right. <clears throat> I think the army yeah. was lucky. It always too. was kind of lucky, actually. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people would love to have been told that. Doesn't seem like you fit in here. Would you like to go home? Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> would you like to not fight in something you don't believe in? Like to kill someone you've that's very far away? Yeah. You know, um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, the, the, the thing that is so interesting to me was that, you know, your love of the beatnik literature and Jerry's love of beatnik literature kind of brought the two of you in a way, in a roundabout way together. And, oh, no, very directly. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you, um, how did you initially um, fall into the beatnik literature yourself? Was that something that you just kind of stumbled into, or was it... Uh... Kind of, sort of, and not. Um, so I was, going to, I was going to graduate school, and uh, I had a very naive idea of what graduate school in history was about. Um, I thought we'd, you know, sit around and think heavy thoughts and, and you know, really <laughs> learn. Um, and I discovered that graduate school was not, it was maybe a little more sophisticated, but not very different from the training line at McDonald's. You were being trained, you know, you, and you were being required to swallow a bunch of information and regurgitate it back and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I, uh, uh, decided to sort of beat the system and try and, and among other things, pick a dissertation topic in advance. Usually you wait until the end and, um, and uh, sort of try and control where I was, what I would, all the, this flood of information that I was absorbing by giving it a little focus. And literally one night about three in the morning, this buddy of mine who was, uh, who's 
not coincidentally, uh, the guy who uh, uh, made me a deadhead uh, or in whose presence I became a deadhead. Um, uh, you know, he had he had like 20 record albums. This is 1972. OK, there were only record albums. Um, and he had uh, 20 of which 18 were Grateful Dead and two were Hatuna. Um, so he had, you you know, didn't have had a choice. <laughs> fundamental, fundamental approach. And um, so one night, uh, but he was, he was also brilliant. Uh, uh, ended up being the dean of engineering at Washington University, which is a very prestigious place. Uh, but uh, he, he was a brilliant mathematician, and you know, stone raving deadhead. And so one, and he liked the beats. I might add. And one night, um, I was saying, maybe I'll do something on the beats. That would be interesting. Um, and he said, no, you should do Kerouac. Uh, his papers are at Columbia and you can stay with my friends uh, in the Bronx. Um, and when you're a broke graduate student and somebody says, and I can put you up on the subway system in Manhattan or in New York. Um, Perfect. That's real. And ironically, um, uh, or not coincident, or perhaps coincidentally, but conveniently, just around then, my parents had moved um, 20 miles from where Kerouac grew up in Lowell. Lowell. So I suddenly went, hmm, the universe seems to be telling me something. And, and nobody had written a book about Kerouac at the time. And whatever I did for my dissertation, I wanted it to be a published book and not just an academic thing. Um, so I started and long story short, I, um, I did it and I finished it and I published it in 1979. And I sent a copy to, and in the interval, as I said, I've been around this guy, Chris, um, I was a deadhead, and, and I said, you know, there are all these con connections between Kerouac and the Beats and the Grateful Dead, it, even more than I even dreamed of, as I found out when I finally got a chance to talk with Jerry about it. When he was 16, he was going to art school at the San Francisco Art Institute in uh, near North Beach. It's on the edge of North Beach, uh, which was the sort of beat neighborhood. This is like 1958, okay? He's 16. On the Road is a bestseller. I mean, it's a current bestseller. Um, and uh, his teacher was a guy named Wally Hedrick, who was, in fact, a real uh, part of the beat scene at the Art Institute, you know, the sort of second generation of beats, a little younger than, than, uh, than Kerouac and Ginsburg, but, but uh, very much into uh, the idea that you know, art, art and spirit, love and spirit and art, uh, are more important than making money. And one day, they, uh, his buddy said, you know, what's this beat thing to Wally? And Wally said, you guys are beat. You know, go down to City Lights, get this book on the road. You know, it's about you. And he did. And one of the great questions I never asked was, did you buy it or did you heist it? <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, he was a street kid. He, he, you know, the five finger discount was not unknown to him. Um, and uh, anyway, he did read it. Uh, and it was the it was the blueprint for the rest of his life. And he, he'd tell you that yeah. it was how you lived and how you acted and and what was important. And it was in, and that stayed important to him until 1995. Uh, you know, when he, when he died, he was with. He was making a lot of money. Uh, he was also waiting for his next paycheck because he figured if he if you spend just a little more than you have, uh, then it doesn't have any control over you, and you know you're okay. 
So, like I said, I, I sent a copy to him and a, a copy to Hunter through the uh, Deadhead post office box, uh, box 1070, either 1065 or 1073. We had both of them, and now I can't remember. Yeah. But anyway, um, that's as much as I knew. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anybody. I had no connections. I just sent him this, this book. Um, and uh, long story short, made, wrote an article about, about the Grateful Dead for the Chronicle, about New Year's Eve, the New Year's Eve ritual. And uh, it, it came out, and I met Jerry, and very, because it wasn't supposed to be the topic of conversation, but I sort of gently slid into the conversation that I had written this book about Kerouac, and he got real excited and, and, and said, oh, you're the guy that did the Kerouac biography? And said really nice things about it. And about three months later, he sent a couple of guys uh, who worked for him, Rock Scully and Alan Trist. Uh, we, and we met at the Warfield. This was after the Grateful Dead had done their 15-night run. Um, and it was actually a, the second Dylan run. And um, they said, Jerry says, why don't you do us? Why don't you write a book about the Grateful Dead? And I was, of course, I'd been dying to do that for seven years. And I sort of went, <laughs> I did, ma I maintained my cool. I said, <laughs> oh, yeah, let me give that some thought. I, uh, you know, and then I proceeded to go home and get really shit faced. I'll think um, about it. But, but anyway, um, yeah. So, you know, I, I got my, my gold ring. That's amazing. That's so I grabbed great. It. You know, he, he shoved it into my hand. <laughs> It's always it's always amazing when the the person that you love I, I I worship Jerry Garcia with everything I have and I listen to your Jerry on Jerry audiobooks and and you know yeah, to learn that. how much to learn how much Jerry loved the beats and at that age at 16 I had a job at a car wash not too far from Yale University <laughs> Did I ever tell you about this, Oteil? My job was to empty the trash cans. It was a hard left turn across four lanes to get into the car wash, so no one ever came to get their car washed. So I would just smoke joints and listen to the Yankees on an AM radio. And uh, <laughs> this guy pulled in in like a little hatchback. He looked like Darwin. He had like a big old beard, and he put like three big black trash bags into the trash bins and then pulled away. And it was my job to empty the trash. And I went over and emptied the there were three bags of books from Yale, like hit Yale School of Drama, Yale School of Psychology, Yale School. They were all stamped Yale. I laid the books out and they were there was everything. I mean, you name it from, you know, Norse literature, like Norse tales to Jack London to all the way up Lewis Carroll and on the road Kerouac. That was the first book I picked up ever in my life and read cover to cover at that car wash. And it completely changed everything. That was like. <laughs> This is it. I love this book. I love this That's lifestyle. A, a, a way to encounter it. I can't <laughs> even remember how I met the book. You know, it was in high school. I heard about it and I, I read it and I went, ah, but, but, uh, and I had, you know, when I was uh, 13, my father, no, actually when I was four, my father and I, just my father and I drove across country uh, for the first time. Um, and I remember bits of that. And then when I was 13, we went, back the other way, uh, the whole fit of my, with my sister. And um, so I had that, everybody should drive across the country at least once. And I mean, drive, no, you know, no, no, flying doesn't count. Um, um, trains are okay, but the point being that, you know, 
It's amazing. I mean, leaving aside the, the sociology of what was going on, what's going on in the book and the music, if you just go through and make a list of all the songs mentioned in the book, you have this amazing slice of, of American music in that era, uh, in the, for, the late 40s, when you've, you've got, you know, bop and, and, and R&B and, you know, just uh, black music is like exploding um, with quality, you know, the, with the, the quality of it is just phenomenal. Uh, but, but, you know, just, just getting a sense of what an amazing, con it's a good continent there in North America, you know, and uh, <laughs> driving across it is quite amazing. Yep. So apple, apple pie and ice cream along the way. <laughs> apple pie and ice cream. Well, you know, you know, it's going to be good. It's nutritious. Uh, so, yeah. So um, I, I, um, on the road is, is like a really important book. And, and that's sort of the way I approached it. Um, I'm, I'm in the history department, not the, or I was, boy, was that a long time ago. Um, but I was, I was approaching it from history, not literature. Um, so that um, uh, what I was impressed by and interested in was the impact that on, on the road comes out in the fall of 57. And just suffice it to say that, uh, most of us uh, have probably seen one of those 50 sitcoms like Father Knows Best or Leave it to Beaver. Well, you know, in 1957, people believed that that was reality. I mean, that was sort of the consensus reality of America was that, you know, fathers were, were kindly and mothers wore frilly aprons and stayed at home and, and there weren't any black people and there weren't any gay people and there weren't, there wasn't any abuse and blah, blah, blah. And that was reality. And on the road was um, was uh, you know this uh, polite. I mean, it was just a book, but it was a rock thrown through the window of this delusion that America was living. Uh, and you know, Janis Joplin's there in Port Arthur, Texas, and she hears about on the road, and she sticks out her thumb and heads for San Francisco. Uh, and you know, Jerry, all Jerry had to do was take the fourteen bus. Um, in, into downtown uh, from his home, which was in, in the southern part of San Francisco. Um, so, you know, it, it, Dylan, Dylan being Dylan, uh, read weirder stuff than on the road. Uh, I, I, imagine, <laughs> I imagine he read on the road, but he, he found some, he, when, when they interviewed him, it was like the things he mentioned about Kerouac were like, you read that? How the hell did you find that? I mean, you know, there were yeah. five copies printed, but um, that's Dylan, you know. <laughs> totally. Uh, and, you know, and Bo David Bowie is reading William Burroughs, you know, and all that stuff. It, yeah. it, it, it's, it was a game changer. <laughs> it really was. I remember one of my favorites. See, I, I, read, I read On the Road at multiple points in my life. I feel like, you know, it's a book you can go back to and kind of like an album and be like, what does it mean to me now? Yeah. You know, and I, I remember that well, probably one of the most pivotal scenes in the book to me in my mind was, was his first trip out west when Kerouac wakes up in like a railroad room and looks at the light on the ceiling and he thinks about the east of his youth and the west of his future and he didn't know who he was. For a brief moment, he had no idea who he was. And it's like that's that's the to me, that's the what we're all looking for. <laughs> you know, the past is is depression and the future's anxiety, just be in the moment and, and not know who you are. It's a beautiful, beautiful, he had a way of just capturing loneliness in such a romantic way. 
when he started writing on the road, uh, he estimated that he'd already written a million words. Um, I mean, he'd been writing compulsively since high yeah, school. Yeah. By now, he's he's late, quite late twenties. Um, and uh, you know, he'd written this uh, fairly conventional first book called "The Town and the City," yeah. and he had, you know, it got published, which, believe me, is triumph uh, when you're trying to break in as a writer, as a as a fiction writer, and. Um, but it wasn't good enough for him. And he he wanted, based largely on jazz and on, on the principle of improvisation, he wanted to take it much, much further. And through various influences, um, he, he found a voice, a new voice. And it was a voice that could not be published. And see, that's the impressive thing, is that he, he kind of committed suicide to, to, to write and not, and assume that it's not gonna be published because the writing establishment in 1951, which is when he wrote on the road, was as tight-assed and as as rigid and as um, concerned with with form and not content right. um, uh, as possible. Uh, and he he um, uh, you know pressed on, and for the next five years he wrote book after book, none of which would ever you know see the light of day, except. Uh, he finally got lucky and he found the right editor and the, the, with the, the right clout, got on the road published, and then he got the review of a lifetime from the New York Times. Again, accidentally, um, the best, the best in some ways, the best story that I had no clue of when I, when I wrote about Kerouac was that, and remember, this is like 1973 or four, and um, so not even remotely anything called an internet. And um, I'm watching television and I knew that uh, the guy who had written this review, which compared it to Hemingway as a generational document, you know, it was, it was, good. Mm. It, was it was the review of a lifetime. And uh, his name was Gilbert Milstein. And, and, you know, how do I find Gilbert Milstein? Well, son of a gun, I'm watching the TV news. I think it was ABC, but, I wouldn't quote me. Um, and I'm reading and I'm reading the credits and there's Gilbert Milstein. And I'm going, well, it's, it's gotta be him. And um, so the next day I, I, I call and yeah, in a minute, I'm talking to Gilbert Milstein. And I just cold call the main number at, at ABC News. Um, and he's an editor, you know, I get to him, he answers the phone and yeah, sure, I'll talk to you. So the next time I go to New York, uh, I go in and talk to him. And, and it turned out that, that uh, he was like the second string reviewer. The main reviewer was a man named Orville Pres Prescott, whose nickname was Prissy. Uh, if he'd done on the road, rest assured, you'd never have heard of it. Uh, and, but he was going on vacation, so he didn't object, and he let Gilbert take it. The rest is history. Amazing. Another great gift. Yeah, yeah. Nothing happens by accident. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. That's one of those ones where you go, you know, where you hear Twilight Zone, you know, theme music in the faint, ba faint background and going, well, you know. Yeah. But it was such a huge thing to, like, burst everybody's bubble. You know, I think that's one of the, the failings of a, American society is that that bubble 
You know what I mean? The pandemic has kind of done the same thing, like pulled back the curtain on where everybody thought, oh, let's get back to normal. It's like normal was totally messed up. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, the, 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 you know, there's four or five. What I'm working on now is, is uh, about the roots of the, the whole sixties hippie so-called phenomenon. And, um, but going back a little further than every book that, uh, that talks about the hate Ashbury in San Francisco starts in 1965 with the charlatans, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, which is, you know, understandable, but it's like, couldn't you like try and give it a little more context? Um, <laughs> and that's what, what this is about. And, and that context is about challenging four or five, what I would say are delusions. Like for instance, um, what they call American exceptionalism, which is that America is uniquely virtuous it's all everything it's done has always been positive and um and it's like uh, does the does the expression 60% of a human being mean anything to you that's called the united states constitution that's what the south got in in electoral votes for the slaves yeah this is not a uniquely virtuous country we, we, you know it's rested on a lie it rests on a lie and and you know that's what the 60s was about was among other things, uh, with the with the example of the Freedom Riders of saying, um, you know, let's be honest, and and that was really one of the, the most shocking things I've experienced in the last five years, and, and you know, with what we've just gone through, um, you you could make a long, long list. Yeah. But one of them was when uh, Trump announced that um, diversity programs were banned. And that, you know, the, 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 the party line was that America is perfect and criticism is not permitted. And, you know, they eliminated uh, uh, the 1619 project, uh, from the New York, that, which the New York Times did with, you know, serious resources to, you know, really trace the impact of, of, of slavery on every aspect of American culture. And, and, you know, here's the president of the United States saying, no, 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 no. We, we, we will, we, we're not going to have any of this criticism. That's, that's unacceptable. That's un-American. It's like, yeah, right. Yeah, well, yeah. so anyway, uh, that, that is what uh, Kerouac and then, and, and just before him and just at this time, um, Allen Ginsberg's poem, How, um, did, which was basically stand up and say, look, the emperor is naked, you know? Yeah. Man. There's no clothes here. Yeah. Um, you know, let's, and there's a great line that Alan um, uh, wrote. I think it's it's in another poem, and it's America. I'm putting my queer shoulder to the wheel, which is to say, uh, you know, he recognized uh, that there was a lot of positive stuff in America. Speaking as the child of immigrants and all that, you know, and they had there was room there for them to to rise, um, but you know, you can't. You can't, you'll pardon the expression, whitewash it. You can't simply say that it's all, you know, it's all yeah. perfect. No, when I, th- when I think about the beaver 
cleaver version of America. I was like, you know, it's like that's what everybody was buying to. I'm like, only white people were buying into that. My dad used to watch, you know, there'd be Mayberry on, and he'd just be passing through the room, and be like, "There ain't no black people in Mayberry. Who's oh. doing all the work?" You know, and then he'd just go <laughs> past through. You know, we're like, "Dad, can we just watch?" Well, you know, that's uh, but that's a yeah. good thing to keep in mind. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, no, they were very consciously uh, <clears throat> um, um, this was a sitcom and, you know, it poked gentle fun. And, uh, you know, what's his face? The uh, the cop, uh, the uh, Barney Fife, Barney, yeah. um, <laughs> Don uh, you know, with a but but, uh, you know, it's dangerous. I mean, it's just downright dangerous when you start thinking that those uh, situations and those values are, are reality. Um, and, you know, yeah. there was a lot of that going on. And- Thanks for listening. We'll be right back with more on Comes a Time. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smart Wool. For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. That's why I remember when uh, Norman Lear started having all his sitcoms. And it was like, just doing stuff like he had the first toilet flush with Archie Bunker. Like, yeah, people didn't go yeah. to the bathroom. That's right. Apparently, right. in the 50s. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, or the, you have the, uh, <laughs> it was just something that, the, for him to be able to get away with, like, attacking those things like head on yeah totally you, know, you could tell that the impact that the 60s had made already to pave the way and the beats before that to pave the way for something like that to happen absolutely no, no a great deal uh you know archie bunker was a very interesting um uh program i uh, it, you know it, it had hit in the spring of 71 and that summer i i uh, i went to paris to Practically try and learn enough French to pass the language exam at uh, in graduate school that fall, and I ran into this uh, wonderful couple. The guy had just spent uh, uh, two years. He was he was American, um, but he just spent two years as the art director of the uh, the press in Tanzania, which was officially socialist. A guy named Julius Nyeri, and so it was kind of he was kind of cutting edge. Uh, both as an artist and as a political, politically, political thinker. And we got to talking about, and, and in 1971, you weren't picking up American TV shows in Tanzania, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the, the web, again, the web and in, in world television didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when I was, I was, he, but it, the one thing that every American, uh, black, white, you know, left wing, right wing did when you were, uh, an exile or an expat um, was read Time Magazine. 
So he had kept up with America in Time Magazine and he read about Archie Bunker, but he said, so tell me about this Archie Bunker thing. Like, you know, <laughs> I can't get enough out of Time Magazine to really get it. So I started, you know, explaining and his eyes just got really, I mean, he was like, yeah, it's not the country I left two years ago. I said, no, there's been some changes. That was a, I, I watched that with my grandfather, with my uncles and what an, un, what an incredible show to this day. It's just so well, it was it was the so culture the, the, the culture divide and and uh, my father uh, uh, was uh, reasonably um, uh, decent among other things about about uh, uh, you know politics and and civil rights and so forth and so on but on the other hand you know he had his he had great limits and the arguments between uh, Meathead and and Archie uh, uh, you know we they they got replicated at my house. And I remember this huge fight with him about um, Muhammad Ali's right to change his name. Mm -hmm. And I just looked at him and I said, everybody should be able to yeah. be called what they want to be called. Who, who, you know, if you're not doing it for fraudulent reasons, how can you object? Well, I don't know about it. You know, and usually my That's father did not generate into the, I don't, you know, uh, it's just not right thing. He was you know, intellectually, at least he could, Present an argument, but that got. But it was that. right for uh, black people to have their complete name, family Shame. names yeah. obliterated. Right, you know, right. Like yeah. I found out we're from Nigeria. Yeah. Like what, seven years ago, or more, maybe a little bit more. Even like worse just now, you know, late in life, finding out where we come from. Even worse in some cases yeah. to have the name of a slave owner as a last well, name. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like I don't want to keep. You know, I, I never give anybody a hard time. It's funny, that's how we got, I got my name and all my siblings, because my dad's name was William Leslie Burbridge, and my mom's name was Carol Orville Smith, like the most white bread, beaver cleaver <laughs> names you could, proper British, yeah, right, yeah. you know? <laughs> and a lot of black people were changing their names back then, which they never had any argument against, but they didn't do it, but they gave each of us an African name, except for my sister Leilani. I'm sure if I changed my name from Burbridge, they'd be like, hey, you know, if I wanted to let go of the slave name, they'd be like, do what you want, you know? Mm -hmm. So I never begrudge that when somebody like, oh, man, that's that's Donnie Jenkins, man. Don't pay no attention to that. It's like, <laughs> no, man, if he wants to let that name go. Right. That's their right. I mean, that's a uniquely American. What about American freedom, dad? <laughs> you know, there's freedom of speech, freedom, freedom of speech. Well, you know, um. I did a book on, on, on what white people got out of black music. It's called On Highway 61. And mm. um, one of the things I... Everything? <laughs> it's just a, a long word. book, huh? <laughs> it's one word. <laughs> Everything. Or contrarily, um, somebody asked me, so what about the American music that isn't affected by, by black people? I said, you mean both, both CDs? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you know... It, it, it's true. <laughs> Among other things, uh, whether you know, you don't have to be a scholar to know that in in the 1740s there was uh, the United States or, uh, <laughs> and the colonies were swept by something called the Great uh, the Great Revival, which was a uh, 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 religious revival that so went up and down the you know the East Coast, uh, and in the South. Uh, they were they weren't in it 
obviously they weren't integrated, but uh, they did let the, the slaves mostly in to the balcony, right? Um, the, old, the old story. And the point being that their singing um, completely changed American church singing, Protestant, you know, hymn, mm. hymn singing permanently from then. So, you know, and since all, pretty much all music in America starts in the church, one church or another, uh, you know, it's all black. And, uh, or in the field. You know, that's where you get the church <laughs> blues divide. There you go. Well, there's, there's <laughs> that too. Um, but anyway, but what I was going to say was, you know, when I, when I did that, I, uh, uh, it, it occurred to me, uh, and I, I sort of went back and I decided there, there was kind of two freedom. The United States has always talked about freedom. Uh, you know, oh, we're the land of the free, home of the brave, <laughs> land of the free. Yeah. Um, and I said, there's kind of two kinds of freedom, uh, most obviously. Um, there's the kind of intellectual freedom that, say, Thoreau displayed, where he, you know, his thinking was so amazing that it was 100 years before people even caught up to him. And right. I, that, yeah. I don't joke about that. Um, I got completely crazy about Thoreau when I was researching this. And, yeah. Uh, We'll, we'll do another podcast. Yeah, we can. You, know, you, 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 you can cover a lot I'm with of that you on that. talking about Thoreau. Um, yeah. And uh, I said, but, you know, and that that was a very small group of people that that were that intellectually open to, you know, reject Christianity, reject American exceptionalism, reject the way we treated nature and, and yeah. relate to it as as something that that we're part of and not. We don't we own. can rape. Um, yeah. That's one, and that's pretty minority. And then there's the freedom to make as much money as humanly possible, which America's always been very good at uh, for a certain, another minority um, of winners. And, <laughs> and you know, that's... Uh, Nietzsche's got this enough. quote. Yeah, that, that this quote that, you know, has been sticking with me, that sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusion destroyed. I mean, that's... I mean, when you look at it now, like just like that answer from your dad, when it's like uh, that, that, that grunt of an answer, which I think we're all having now when we have these conversations with certain people in our circles, you get this like, uh, I feel like that translates like, I don't know why I'm uncomfortable with it, but I'm uncomfortable with it. And I don't want to know why, you know, like, and it's kind of like this almost like it's easier not to, you know, think. Well, there, there's, there's so many things wrapped up together. Like, you know, yeah. If you credit when I criticize America, like if I'm going to go hard, <clears throat> I like to distinguish, you know, because there's three Americas I think that we're talking about. We're talking about the land itself, which you've mentioned, like how amazing it is. Like you should go drive across it and see it. Right. And there's the people, which I think two thirds of um, are good with me and I'm good with them. <laughs> and then. Then there's the government, which I'm like, <laughs> you know, like so. Um, so when I criticize, like, let's just talk about. But see, when you say something like, "Do you change your name?" You know, like I'm against. When I say I'm against the war, I'm not saying I'm against the people in the military. Those are probably poor people, a lot of whom are black that went in because they got into trouble, like Jerry, or they didn't have a better option. I'm talking about the people that send them to war. So now we're back at the government, right? And the companies that <laughs> pay if, for the war. 
Yeah, but if I say this to the people that send them the war, they're saying, oh, you're doing that to the military. I'm like, no, 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 no. Not that I'm not... I'm not saying that. I support them. Those are my brothers and sisters that are going there, get their asses shot off or killed for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, I think it's good that, I hate to say it's good the pandemic happened. I hope people don't like quote tweet me or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, but the good part about it is that the pandemic has is, is peeled that back. I had a lot of people write me on my Instagram. You know, when the George Floyd thing happened, you're like, ah, oh, finally. You know, we could talk about this. So I just started firing. People were like, whoa, whoa, Teal, when did you get so, like, no, whatever? I was like, yeah. And I was like, well, you know, forever, it was just like, don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. I'm like, okay. You know, we're, this is just for here's my gigs. His pictures of like you know kid digging a hole. Yeah, yeah. You know, but then it's like okay, if we're really going to talk about it, let's talk. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> it just shocked a lot of people, and I'm just like, you know, some of us haven't been living in this bubble. We've been on the outside of the bubble, you know. Even though I've got to go back and forth between the two worlds, you know, since I was very young, you know, if you still come from the outside of the bubble, that's your orientation. You know, I haven't lost that, like, preference for how are the poor are going to do or whatever, you know, in politics. Absolutely. And, but yeah, it, it, it's, um, I, you know, I don't know why I started, um, maybe just because I was little um, as a kid, but I, I just always um, uh, wondered, you uh, understood the principle of equality, the implications of equality and, and uh, the, you know, the Bill of Rights uh, and, and all that stuff and worked from that, that. And you can't, as you say, you, that, that looking at it now, um, my father's unwillingness to confront uh, uh, Ali's decision to to change his name um, was the classic sort of white liberal. Well, you know, look, I I, I want him to have his rights, but not too many, or something, mm -hmm. you know. And yeah. they're not willing to. And one of the things, as you say, the positive side of of the pandemic, in, in particular of of Black Lives Matter, was um, watching people have hard conversation and and you know that that idea you know of, we don't have institutional racism oh, really um you know uh, yeah. and and colin kaepernick prisons right with tom. <laughs> well i mean just even colin kaepernick all he did was, was neat. take a no, knee and, and, and start a, a national uproar and, you know yeah. Just the idea that if you know if you're not with me, you're against me. Uh, yeah, is uh, well, no, you know, but can, can't we be a little more subtle than that? Hmm. Yeah. You know, and even like you, you, you look at like that when when Kerouac was asked like, what is the beats? What does it mean to be a beat? And he just in one word, sighing, just says sympathetic. And that was like the. And I thought about that as like a all right, like that's what it means, like just to be open and vulnerable and, and 
admit you don't know everything and kind of be okay with learning. You know? um, empathy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. And I, 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 uh, I'm very involved with Zen Buddhism and, and uh, the, the, our, the guy who founded it in America, uh, Suzuki Roshi um, talks about beginner's mind that you're open the beginner's mind, you know, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities and solutions. And in the expert's mind, there's only, you know, the one that you've already uh, concluded. And the interesting thing about Kerouac was that um, the critics associated him. There were only in the mid fifties, the, the, this, you know, the, the, the culture apparatus, said, you know, everything's fine, right? You know, we're prosperous, yeah. you know, no war, all good. War's over. You know, we, we, black people were, you know, oh, they're, they're fine. They're fine. They're, they're, you know, everything's getting better. Um, and um, the only other deviants other than the beats were the juvenile delinquents. That's the only ones they would recognize as, yeah, we do have a problem with this, with some of these, these juvenile delinquents who were, of course, are violent. So they, they, they started lumping the beats in with them and uh, uh, implying that they were all violent. Kerouac, you know, was as nonviolent as you can imagine. There is no violence in On the Road. You know, right. where was this coming from? Well, it was coming from because, again, uh, the only other people that were sort of acknowledged as existing, heavens, you know, leaving aside uh, gay people, Gays, yeah, and and you know Native American, you know everybody that isn't white, and et cetera, and women, and blah blah blah. So, um, uh, you know, and and there's Kerouac who just, and if ever there was a person, Otil, I mean, you 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 have experienced legitimately. I've experienced it as a matter of reflection, which is to say. I'm a little bit famous, quote unquote, in this weird little world of the Grateful Dead, you know, which isn't so little as a couple million people. Um, I am famous in the sense um, that there are people who know who I am if, if they see me and I don't know who they are, which is okay with me. Um, with me, it's a reflection because I'm, frankly, I am not famous in that sense. I worked for somebody who was famous and I'm as close to him as they're going to get. So, you know, people, oh, I'm very excited to meet you. It's like, well, don't be, I mean, just say hi. <laughs> You've earned it. I mean, you know, you're, you're a, a consummate artist and, you know, so when people come up to you, they have an image of who you are. It may or may not have any connection other than the fact that you play bass. Uh, it may not have any connection to who you are. Kerouac, if anybody was ever not equipped to deal with fame, which is to say not <laughs> equipped to have people make assumptions about him uh, yeah. that, yeah. you know, in it's... fact, were not true, um, you know, it was him. And, and that's why, uh, you know, that wonderful review catapulted him into, into uh, you know, fame and to having some money. Um, and it killed him. I mean, you know, because Same his only defense was a bottle of Johnny Walker. Now, instead of a little wine, he's drinking, you know, fifths of scotch. At his mother's house. Yeah. At his mom's house. And, yep. you know, 10 years later, he's managed to drink himself to death. Not yeah. too, not too uh, different from Jerry. 
No. Well, who is who is equipped for fame? Well, there's that, I mean, literally, there's that incredible quote that Barlow was talking to Garcia about Weir. And he goes, I don't know if Bob's fit for, you know, like the fame. And Jerry goes, who is? No one is. Nobody. I mean, I can name like, try to name people that fame didn't either drive crazy, even if they got over it, or kill. Like there's Dolly Parton and yeah, you know, Neil Young, yeah, maybe. Yeah, who knows? Neil Young? Oh, I know, I'm just being sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm like, I got to start trying to think, you know. Well, Neil, you know, Neil took one look at fame and pivoted and, and just. Yep. Love it. Applied serious controls to all the manifestations of it in his life. Yeah. So yeah. that, you know, uh, I mean, he, in a sense, as a slightly strange guy, he, he, he at least could see it coming. And, yes. And, yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Figured it out. But uh, Jerry managed to hold it off yeah, for a long, long time. Um, but you know, to me, I mean, in particular, it, it, I've had this argue, I've had a running argument with Mickey about about. Uh, I sort of on some weird level blame not blame it but attribute much of his you know last few years to Brent's death and to the fact that you know yeah that and it's not like Jerry took personal responsibility for the Brent Brent had some character blind spots that obviously came from his childhood I, I mean it wasn't as though the Grateful Dead just you know, corrupted this nice young man and, and uh, <laughs> ate him alive, spit him up, and, and, and there he goes. Uh, but um, it was, being part of the Great Old Day was, you, you see, you know, you see it amongst the survivors, amongst uh, Mickey and Billy and Bobby, uh, Justin, in whatever it is, however, you know, they relate. Um, they managed, you know, they've managed to survive, um, but they've got scars from, yeah, from the li- life and it. And, and, you know, when, you, when you can't leave your hotel, the best, right. let me put it this way. The best single thing I ever did for the Grateful Dead was, um, I got, I made arrangements. Um, uh, there was this amazing touring, uh, show of Monet, um, where there were like five or seven things that he painted over and over and over again, but at different times of day, different seasons, so forth and so on. And so there were like five, like a haystack and the bridge and whatnot, 10 versions of each view. And um, I got the Grateful Dead an hour alone with this art show. And, you know, I mean, Jerry hadn't been able to go into a museum in years. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, they loved, I mean, it was just, it was wonderful to just be able to go look at wonderful art and not, and not be bothered. Um, Jeez. It's uh it's something I always talk about. So sorry to our comes a time viewers that I'm going back over it again, but it keeps coming up. It's something out of the Bible, the concept of idolatry. And it's one of the most important and most true ones because it's so toxic for if it's put on to a person. Yeah. Right? For it's it's equally as bad for the person 
person doing the worshiping as the person being worshiped. Mm. <clears throat> that kind of thing is only supposed to be for the ineffable, the divine, the, you know, the and, bigger and, than, and, uh, you and know. And you can apply that to the music, but keep right. that. And Jerry was very clear that there's the music over here and what we, we being the band and the audience and the whole thing creates, which is magical. And me, who, to quote him, all I'm doing, man, is trying to stay in tune. You know, <laughs> he, did not, That's, he yeah. did not take himself too seriously. Uh, yeah, but you get yeah. tired when people, you know, people, I, um, there was somebody arranged, it was kind of like a make-a-wish thing uh, of a guy in a, in a, who was going to get to meet Jerry. And he was in a wheelchair and, and, you know, very nice young man, but he was like hyperventilating, right? Oh, oh, oh God, Jerry's coming. And I, and I looked at him and I, I was very proud of myself after because, I mean, it, it, it got through. I looked at him, I said, listen, I, I got to tell you a secret. His eyes are like big. And I yeah. said, Jerry farts. <laughs> That's and he cracked up and I said, and, you know, and he snores and he, you know, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and if you, if you walk in, if he walks in and you're like as excited as you are right now, he's going to be very uncomfortable. You, you, you know, he's just the person. And he went, yeah, I understand. And, and did in fact calm down and they had a nice chat. <laughs> That's great. I mean, people do the craziest. Oh. I would, I swear, I, I, God knows I do not want to be famous. I'm just a little bit more famous than I'd like to be. If you could do, if you could be like Elton John's lyricist, that's the guy. <laughs> yeah, that's the idea. Nobody <laughs> knows who he looks like, right? Yeah. Well, that's why Bob Hunter, yeah. Hunter was such a cool, you know. You could go to the grocery store. You could do whatever you got to do. All that. All that. Hunter, <laughs> Hunter, Hunter, well, Hunter got, Hunter added on i mean yes he he was yeah. less uh certainly less visibly known to deadheads than anybody but on the other hand um he also at, at his funeral his, the his uh the guy who had booked him when he was doing you know when he was touring mm. told a story about uh that every year uh you know hardly strictly bluegrass which is this wonderful free yeah, i love them gigantic uh event in golden gate yeah. park uh, a local, uh, very wealthy guy, uh, you know, pays for it, or pay, uh, and his estate, he's passed, uh, pays for it. And every year, they would offer Hunter what what uh, Steve, his, his agent, called stupid money um, to come down and do a 45-minute set. And Hunter said, so, you know, what do you think this is going to be? And he said, well, you're going to drive down to Golden Gate Park, park backstage, have a bite, go on stage, play for 45 minutes, go home, and you're gonna have enough money to put an addition on your house. And, and Hunter said, but, but you know, more people will know what I look like and, and recognize me. And he said, you don't leave your house. How can they, you know, how can they find you? So that was his solution, uh, you know. Uh, and you I might add, room to hang strictly bluegrass. So, well, that was—I I love that quote that uh, 
in um, the other one too, uh, in the Netflix documentary with Bob, where he talked about how, you know, they wanted to be successful, but on their terms and sidestep fame. I love that concept. You know, as a comic, I'd see these comics who, to me, were, you know, if I'm working the club in the West Village and when they walk into the room, the comedy fans are like, oh my God, that's Brian Regan or that's, you know, Bill Burr or whoever. And then they walk out into the street and walk down the street and they just kind of blend back into the, you know, just the, the faceless New York night. And, and it's, it's kind of, there's a little bit of jazz still in the, in that world. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, 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 you know, great artistic um, accomplishment, but with very few exceptions, you know, not what you'd call fame beyond a very, you know, narrow, uh, right. narrow slice. Um, uh, through the seventies, that was pretty much true with the members of the Grateful Dead. Um, you know, in the, in the early seventies, uh, Jerry Garcia said that he made $125 a week. Okay. That's $6,000 a year. Now <laughs> you could live on that in 1971. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, you were not the Beatles. You were not Mick Jagger. You were, you know, just yeah, cigarette money for him. It was cigarette <laughs> money, and and yeah, you know, maybe there was enough. I mean, that boy went through a lot of cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, but but um, so you know, it 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 was it was a healthy uh, situation yeah. for a long long time where they had enough. They could play, you know, as much as they you know, he could play as much as he wanted, and you know, by the early seventies, he was playing in three bands, and you know. Happy, yeah. Uh, his idea of perfect was about four nights a week, every week, um, you know, and just a couple of nights off to, you know, recharge. So, but it was <laughs> I, I about playing and being able to play on your own terms. Uh, and, and they had that. And then by the 80s, I think basically what happened was you've got um, the Reagan era, which is, you know, and greed is good and, and that sort of uh, mentality. And then this slice of the population that says, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, and and um, uh, becomes deadheads because it's sort of the last adventure to go out on the road and follow a band around. And, um, and then unfortunately it just built and built and built. That's like MTV, then MTV happened and greed is good and Reagan said no we're coming for you you know all that it's like old battle and and and, you know then there's the thing that that the the deadheads paved and then 95 hits and jerry you know passes and then you know fish and some of these other bands kind of carried it and that's where i you know i was 15 when jerry died and i started you know religiously following fish around the country after reading on the road and studying but like paul grushkin's book on deadheads and yeah. And it totally, you know, and it, and it was, it felt right. And it felt like, okay, well we're carrying that torch or the ball was passed or whatever it may be. And then this festival world blows up. It seems like, you know, the intrepid are always going to find a way to create a little space. Othiel and I always talk about how the lot was the, right. Othiel, what do you say? Like the lot is the, 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 like the, the lot. <laughs> and when the pandemic hit, I said, you know, everybody's going to be on Shakedown Street now, you know, because everything's making your own like, clothes. Yeah, you just have to make your own way. And I thought, you know, 
Deadheads are uniquely prepared for like an after the end of the world scenario. Yeah. Totally, you know hard. what I mean? Because yeah. there's certain flexibility and and uh, and uh, you know willingness to stick your neck out. Um, yeah. I uh, I gotta say, uh, after uh, comes a time. And pardon me, uh, fairly well. This has come to time. There was also one for Jerry at the 10 year anniversary. Uh, yeah. uh, but in uh, in 2015 with with fairly well, um, I thought uh, that deadheadism would sort of dwindle away because everything dwindles away uh, in this world. Uh, you know, yeah, there may be one major exception to that, and that is deadheads. And what I realized six months later uh, was, in fact, it just reignited everything uh, until now there. It's it's 2021. There are more deadheads than there were in 1995, which is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, you know, it's just yeah. And and I mean, you know, you you start with Dead and Company, um, which which uh, is sort of a, you know, uh, the the you know, sort of the, the most obvious thing. I mean, for Dead and for for Bob Weir to still be playing stadiums, um, as he hits 70 and beyond, um. Is like say yeah. what? My uh, uh, the local rock critic um, talked about you, you'll like this. Uh, uh, going to see Dead and Company at Shoreline, and we're back to Palo Alto. But going go, going to see uh, uh, Dead and Company at Shoreline, and and watching the audience respond to John Mayer, and he he got stuck in sort of a time loop. And there's John Mayer and Deadheads in front of him or in between them, the audience. And all he could think of was seeing John Mayer seven, eight, ten years before when the audience was all 13-year-old girls. <laughs> and it was like, you know, and, and yeah. Mayer was like superb in both contexts. But the contexts were so contrasting that, it, you know, he, he, yeah. it was, he could barely process it. But the, the thing is that in addition to the to the big dog uh, of of Dead and Company, there's like five Dead cover bands in every town in America. Yeah, and it's it's yeah. its own language. But you know there has been that for a long time already, right? Yeah. But it's it's. I mean, it's like more underground. More and more, like, yeah, and yeah. Like, they're making a lot well, more what's money amazing now. now. Yeah, and what's amazing now, <laughs> as much as I can't stand social media, one of the amazing things about it is you could see a twelve-year-old prodigy in his in his parents' basement playing a you know help on the way, you know, like masterfully. Man, I'm about to bust out one on people. This kid, Jaden Liebman, yeah. lives here. He came to me for a lesson. I was like, man, I mean, you know, maybe you want to study with my guitar player, Tom Guarna, who I study with, but I'm, you're, do you want to play with me? Like, you know, we started playing together and we played Birdsong, and this kid is playing. Like Birdsong is just, you know, it's slow. There's like one chord. You got to play. You got to make something. Yeah, that's... And there's so much space for you to fail. Yep. And he just was like amazing. I was like, man, I got to start playing with this kid. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I, I love it that you could see it going on. There's and so on many advents the to there's 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 so many like, you know, fill in the blank dead. Like I was saying, I think when Krasno was on the podcast, Dennis, I went to uh, Denver and I saw a band called Steely Dead. 
and they were it was Steely Dan, Grateful Dead hybrid. That's all they played, and it yep. was the the segues in and out were just unreal. How they would be able to, you know, go from a Bertha to a Bodhisattva back into a you know, and it's just so beautiful the way it was. Oh done. yeah, no, no, I, I I could see that. I know a band called Uncle Dwayne's Uncle Dwayne's band, which was uh, Dead and, and Almonds, and, <laughs> and there's a band uh, that was at. at uh, or they're supposed to be, I guess, uh, and will be next year, and hopefully so will you, at, um, at Skull and Roses in Ventura, yeah. um, a band called Pink Talking Fish. Yes, so yes, they're, they're fantastic. Pink Floyd, Talking Heads, Fish, and the Dead. Yep. Yeah. No, they're... <laughs> I love the Bluegrass Dead stuff. And the, blue... yeah. and the reggae. Remember, uh, was it Peter Rowan? They did, like, I saw him at Suwanee. It was like this whole, it was Deb as all reggae. Yeah, it's uh-huh. amazing. It's so good, oh, yeah, man. Absolutely. Really and um, yeah. uh, uh, I've just gone black. Roosevelt Collier. Do you know uh, Roosevelt Collier? Oh, dude, it, I know it, Rosie really yeah, well. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, applying sacred steel to Grateful. And his his story, because mm-hmm. he came to Skull and Roses, so I, I, I was talking with him about stuff. And, uh, you know, Bobby said they did a Merle Fest in uh, North Carolina, the Doc Watson's late son, and uh, the festival's named after and um, this guy and, uh, jumps up and sits in on him. He doesn't know who he is. Weird. Um, and, uh, you know. <laughs> I know, Rosie, he doesn't know, well, he didn't you know, know who Weir was in there. church, I mean, he just didn't. And uh, he knew, I guess he knew Sugary because, you know, he knew one song, one Grateful Dead song. And, uh, you know, now he's, I mean, he's such a brilliant player. <laughs> His band, he was in a band called the Lee Boys. I used to tour at my solo band, the Peacemakers. Uh-huh. We did a, we played together a bunch. And uh, yeah, he's great. You know, what you said earlier, though, reminded me of this time about them playing uh, stadiums. I was in the stadium with Dead and Company, and I would always hang in Bill Kreutzmann's uh, little pipe and drape. Yeah. They set up like a dressing yeah. room on stage, right. you know. And he's looking out or enormous crowd, you know, these are the biggest surpassed even Almond Brothers. Like we never played stadiums. Yeah. And uh and he looks at me, he goes, Isn't this amazing? Like I can't believe this. And I was like, You've been playing stadiums since I was like before stadiums. You know, <laughs> yeah, six years old. Like really <laughs> but he still was blown away by it. And I thought that is so cool man like yeah I, I wish that so many people could have shared that moment with me uh very, with him it was really honest you know and very healthy just uh, you know just just yeah. as we go you know it didn't have to be this way uh yeah. you know we could have ended up yes. in, in in country county fairs or stopped you know playing because it, it didn't feel right but but uh right. to uh to have that kind of draw 50 years after the test. Okay. Duke Ellington kept up his sales standards. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many musicians after 50 years, Sinatra, but I mean, the Stones. The Stones. Yeah. Paul McCartney. And McCartney. That's a short list. Yeah, there's a handful, but still. (laughs) I mean, but the Grateful Dead is, it's just, it's something so different. It really is. And it's just yeah, so- when you can get into a stadium yeah. and play something that is essentially like a Miles ballad, like Dark Star or Bird Song or something, 
for a long time. <laughs> There's no rush. And everybody's keyed in on every note. What, the first time that happened, I was like, man, this is some other shit right here. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. I don't care what anybody says. Like, to be able to get away with that, like that's a 20, success right 30 there. minute. Yeah, I was yeah. just like, who? That's as much a, a compliment to the crowd as the band. Like, who could do that? Yeah. You know? You know oh, well, it's, 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 a real, it's a really weird, interesting community. And yeah. weird is, of course, a very positive uh, adjective in the in the world of yeah. Red Um I got to tell you, you know, uh, when I first heard that that uh, Dead and Company would would you know have you, I I uh, I, I will confess, um, I, I all I knew about you at that moment uh, was Owens, and yeah. and so I just assumed, my bad, um, uh, that you were a fairly straight straight ahead conventional bass player. <laughs> you didn't know like, about Colonel Bruce Hampton, huh? I didn't know about, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. And then somebody said, no, and really early on, they went, no, 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 you should look him up. And and then when I, of course, and and then, but I still have that sort of residual um, assumptions. <laughs> uh, and then I went to yeah. see uh, Den Company for the first time, and it was like, oh, I can see why they picked him. He's he's weirder than Phil. <laughs> well, now that is a compliment. It's officially you're going to make me tear up. I always do. That's officially the greatest compliment I've ever gotten on my bass playing. So thank you for that, oh, Mr. McNally. It's true. There's, I mean, there's a wow. There's space and room and flexibility. Because um, I aspire to that, but I can't. Do it like Phil is the one guy that just totally stumps me. Like I could imitate a lot of people. I, I can't necessarily get their tone or whatever, but he's just like, like a cloud. Like you grab it and it's gone. Or it's just like, and to me, he's the weirdest and like the king. And I say that again in a very oh, good yeah, sense, yeah. you yeah, know, yeah. Um, yeah. in the highest possible sense. So thank you for that because. Uh, that's what I do is I just think about Colonel Bruce and Sun Ra and Ornette Coleman. <laughs> just like, if it happens, just let it happen, man. Just go. You know? One of the great, um, really, moments of my life uh, was watching Ornette Coleman sit in with the Grateful Dead. That, that, oh, that connected uh, fans yeah. of American music. Uh, uh, absolutely. American music. Of all, Dylan geez. put out a statement when Jerry died, and it was... I may have this partly wrong. I know he mentioned Ornette, and I'm, I think it was Doc Watson. But anyway, where he said that Jerry was the only musician he knew of that, could, could, that spanned all of American music from when yeah. he yeah. to Doc Watson, say. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, and, and loved it all, you know. And with the magic sauce of improvisation, you could absorb it all. You could, you could connect it all. Um, and that's... that's I mean, to me, that's why the Grateful Dead um, um, is just is a phenomenon, and the music that is the same. And what I discovered, you know, is after Fair Thee Well, rather than uh, being stuck on the band, those guys as individuals, yeah. um, that had said, "No, well, we're we're stuck on the music," um, and yeah. and uh, yeah. so they have been. It's the spirit. It's like a 
the intention of it. Yeah, it's like what Mickey said know? when Mickey was on the podcast. He said he's never felt anything like those three nights in Chicago. You know, I mean, and it was, yeah. and and as someone who can't get enough Grateful Dead knowledge, and uh, you know, whether if if I'm not listening to the music, I'm listening to you know interviews and audiobooks. Can't thank you enough. Dennis, for everything yeah. that you've given us as far as, you know, there's a family upon the family, you know, like, you, you know, yourself, David Gans, um, you know, I mean, Le, Lemieux, I mean, everybody, Dick, the whole, the, the whole caravan of, of creative people that gave all of us so much of what we wanted. And there's not enough thank yous to that can ever, you know, yeah. really Honestly, thank you so much. Oh, you're entirely welcome. And I, my, my stock reply, and I get, you know, I get a fair amount of people just that I are strangers and march up and shake my hand and say, thank you for what you do. Um, and, and people sort of have looked at me and said, well, you know, that's fairly amazing. And I said, no, you know, I, I, I think I understand the spirit in which it is. And my standard reply is simply, you're welcome. I, mean, I had fun. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I chose this, I, and then I got chosen, and I got real lucky uh, and, and uh, got what I wanted uh, to do, to, to, to have that uh, opportunity um, to apply my craft as a historian to um, what is an amazing story. Um, and as I say, when I, when I published in, in 2002, uh, it never occurred to me that um, that it would it was continue to grow and continue to expand and go you know a completely just beyond anything I ever dreamed of. Um, but I can live with that. I'm for it. <laughs> and 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 you know uh, you have to come back on so I can ask you. <laughs> 10 of the 50,000 questions I have about Jerry Garcia as always Otiel, right? Like the, I have an idea of where this may go and it always goes somewhere better. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be happy to. And I, I, you know, he, um, I, I get it, you know, I get, I get, uh, I get those questions a lot and I, you know, I, I, uh, he was, uh, in addition to being really, really smart, which you, which he was, um, but like you know, Phil Lesh is ac- academically wise at least at least as smart. I mean, Phil's brilliant. Um, uh, but what Jerry had uh, was what they call EQ, which is emotional intelligence. His his ability to relate to people, to be curious about people, to well, you you get that in 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 Jerry on Jerry. Um, yeah. Uh, is off the charts and and uh, to the point of making me crazy sometimes because uh, he we organize an interview and and instead of promoting the product because as Otil perfectly well knows ninety percent of all ninety five percent of all rock and roll interviews are selling advertising yeah. sessions there's yeah. selling either a ticket or a book or a, a record or whatever right um, that's sort of the purpose um, Jerry refused I mean. Uh, he 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 was there to have a conversation, and you know if it happened to touch on that piece of music, fine. Uh, but if it didn't, he didn't care. Yeah. Um, and we did this big Rolling Stone cover, and um, there was almost, it was a, there was some side project he'd done that, that was sort of my excuse for 
bothering him. And, uh, and uh, there was nothing, there was like one paragraph in a big long article about this side project. And I, I called the editor, I was just ready to just scream. And before I could get a word out, he said, I know we did, he didn't talk about it. I tried to get him to talk about it. He wanted to talk about his daughter, who was like three and was, he was fascinated with the way she was learning things. I went, oh, God, he's probably telling the truth. I can't tell. Oh, poop. So, It'll sell that's scary. anyway. Uh, that's and that's scary. why people wanted to talk with him, because it was genuine. He was curious about who you were. Yeah. He was not all that impressed with himself. Anyway. That's what makes them beautiful, in my eyes. Yeah, we'll take that up another time. Yes, thank you so much. Bless you, man. Thank you, everyone, for Bless listening. You. And uh, yeah, seriously, thank you for doing what you do. And oh. and uh, bring your bring your friends out to Skull and Roses in uh, yeah. April, a year from a year from now. I know. I thought they were going to do it again, and then they postponed it again. But I'm really looking forward to that because uh, I. I I miss Melvin Seals, man. <laughs> you know. Oh no, Melvin Melvin's <laughs> You know, did you ever hear him tell the stories of, of uh the, the day he auditioned for Jerry? Yeah. Yeah. He he told it on the podcast. It's the funniest yeah, yeah. thing it's ever. Like, uh, it's, it's, it's you know, because it's such a perfect story, you can't not tell it. And and um and you know, and he's he just came to play and, and uh, that's why he stuck with Jerry till the day Jerry died. So, you know, yeah. but you were talking about Brent. It made me think about that because uh, you know, Jerry shielded all that drug use from Melvin. He got him his own dressing room. So Melvin wouldn't see them doing all that. And I was like, yep. wow. Mm. He just was like, uh, uh-uh, uh, you can't. No, well, you know, yeah. I, I, and I, the, he, he, and yeah. Anyway. Next time. <laughs> part two. It was, it was, yeah, that's for part two. <laughs> Bless you, Thank Dennis. you, Dennis, Thank so, you much. so much. Man. You're very welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.